It damages our mucous membrane and our gut lining. It just causes a massive inflammatory response in the body. We are not meant to eat gluten. We're just not. You might be able to tolerate it. You might be able to consume it. You might not get any gut symptoms, but gut symptoms doesn't mean something's not going on in the gut that's problematic. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Foster, and I'm here today with Ryan Evans, who is a former bodybuilder, strongman, MMA fighter. He's also a registered dietitian with a particular interest in gut microbiology and also mental health. I'm super excited to have you here, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Angela. So excited. Thanks for having me. Well, I have a ton of questions, so I'm very, I'm literally thrilled <laughs> to have you here today. So let's get started by introducing you and tell us about your background and how you went from a bodybuilder and strongman and fighter to helping people solve their gut and mental health issues. Yeah, sure. So I pretty much um, started bodybuilding when I was around 15 years old. Um, I went down that path um, of, you know, training constantly and sort of abusing my body over time, even though people sort of perceived that as a healthy way of life. Um, And you look healthy. It actually was actually the complete opposite from my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually then went to compete in strongman and pushing my body weight to up as 130 kilos and being 20, 24, 25 stone, you know, and I'm only six foot tall. That was quite a lot of weight on a, on a small frame really. Um, And my health got compromised as I, you know, got into my late twenties, thirties. My mum got ill. Um, She actually had uh, bowel cancer and it just started to take me down this rabbit hole of learning about the bowel and learning about our gut and learning about, um, you know, lifestyle modifications and all these other things. So that was where the sort of big turnaround happened for me. Um, And, you know, through my background of what I studied at university, um, you know, I never really touched on uh, gut microbiome really in university at that stage. This was quite a while ago um, until um, it was until my mum got cancer. Then I started looking into the gut microbiology. And then also my gut was in a very bad way. So it was my, through healing my own gut, I actually learned a lot of the stuff that I did. We can only learn from experience, right? So Mm. that's, uh, you know, you learn so much more because it's your own body that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, for sure. I absolutely agree. Um, So let's go, let's circle back a little bit. You were saying, and I've heard a lot, this is quite common with people that Mm. get into something, you know, quite an extreme sport like bodybuilding, saying that they didn't feel healthy. And obviously to the outside Mm. world, you look a picture of health, you're very lean, um, great body composition. What at that point, um, before your mum came out, were you already noticing things? Was your gut health suffering as well at that point? Or what did you notice that made you feel unhealthy? say I was very unaware of what was going on within my body. My bodybuilding for me was a distraction from my own problems in a turmoil that I had sort of going on at that time. So I was never really aware of what was going on with my body, but I never felt right in my physical body, even though I looked great and I had 3% body fat and I was what people would class as a great physique. Um, I ended up, you know, in a sort of really bad 
you know, compromised health. I would always have constipation or would have diarrhea, gut pain after I'd eaten certain amounts of food. And because I was consuming so many calories and constantly bombarding calories down my mouth to get bigger and stronger, that it eventually compromised my gut and ended up with me having like heartburn and all sorts of different issues that I had gut wise. And it wasn't until I started to fix my own gut uh, many years down the line that um, you know, I started to be aware of what was actually happening and when I started to then study gut microbiology. Mm. And that's what you've um, pointed out there. That's something I see a lot with my own clients. Um, and just generally when you're talking to people, that you know, it's surprising the number of people that will say, oh, yeah, I get IBS. You know, I, and if you sort of quiz them, they, they say they sometimes have diarrhea, they sometimes have constipation, or at mm. certain times they're really bloated. And this isn't um, normal. What have you found, just so we can kind of help people, if they're getting those symptoms and Generally speaking, let's face it, the GP is going to just say, oh, it's a bit of IBS. Maybe you're a bit stressed. Maybe your gut's a bit sensitive and that's it. What Mm. have you found? Are there any common threads that you found that seem to show up for people? Um, You know, people don't always have a pathogen or something nasty Mm -hmm. that necessarily needs treating, but they are getting these kind of low-grade symptoms. What have you found with that? Um, I'm a big believer in that 90 to 90, uh, 95% of all diseases are caused from stress in the gut. Pretty much all disease, I think, is stemmed from our gut. I believe our gut is our first brain, not our second brain. I believe it's our first brain. I think that our brain has just tricked us into thinking that's the first brain because of the way it consciously thinks. I actually think that our first brain actually stems in our gut because of all of our neurotransmitters that are in our gut, our endocrine system, our hormones. Um, everything starts in our immunity from our gut. So what most of the time I see with people is that they've tried every other avenue. They've been told by the doctor they've got IBS. Um, they then end up on some form of antidepressant. Um, and then they notice when they start taking the antidepressant that their, their IBS symptoms actually reduce um, because their gut motility has started to normalize a little bit. So what ended up happening is that they take the antidepressants, their gut symptoms start to improve, but then they're still on this medication. And they're still getting the IBS symptoms uh, swaying and stuff. And I feel like what the the problem is is that IBS is a very a very wide term for people that can't really get to the bottom root cause of why they've got gut issues. You know, mm. so it's uh, I see that pretty much on a daily basis. People that have tried everything, they're taking all these different supplements and they're taking all these antibiotics. The doctors have given them to kill off this and to try this and putting all these steroid creams and, you know, all the makeup and the toxicity that's on in their daily lives makes it worse. And then before you know it, their gut's in a really bad state and they end up coming to me when they've got Crohn's disease or colitis or, you know, something that gets really serious and inflammatory. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you mentioned there about them going on antidepressants. And I think it's something like 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. So when mm-hmm. somebody might be experiencing symptoms of depression, if we're looking at, um, and they're having these gut issues, what have you found? If we put the stress aside at the moment, have you found that certain foods are affecting the production of these neurotransmitters? Or is it more the mental health and the lifestyle and the stress factors. What in terms of nutritionally have you found? Can you extrapolate from that? Most of the time, it's a very diet that's really high in sugar, high in carbs, high in unorganic and dead food. Mm. Um, you know, we're eating from dead soil. 
um, you know, soil that has not got any life. We're not eating live food any anymore. You know, we eat vegetables and stuff. We're not getting any magnesium in it. You know, 50 years ago, we would get 80% more magnesium than we do now. So by the time we've actually food got on our plate after we've cooked it, boiled it and steamed it, cooked it and put it in the oven again, um, by the time it gets to our plate, we've actually gotten hardly any nutrients whatsoever. So people are eating all this food that they generally uh, term healthy, but because it's unorganic, it's most of the time it's, it's causing that problem in the gut. And then that sort of, you know, the pesticides and the herbicides that are on that stuff and the hormones that are in the meat that we consume is just causing problems on, on our gut bacteria. It's just constantly being bombarded all the time from toxicity. And this is why I think that the rises in disease and stuff is going up and mental health disorders are going up because our gut health is getting worse over the years. Yeah, and I think what I've found is a lot of people, they might try and dismiss organic on the basis that they feel it's more expensive. And some, you know, you often see newspaper reports that say, well, actually, the vitamin content isn't that different. When I've looked into this, and the micronutrients actually are very different. When you think like a plant is not able to move to defend itself, and so they have to develop resilience. And when you're eating wild plants or organic plants, they're actually having to fight harder for survival. And so the micronutrients that they develop and those antioxidant defense systems are that much greater than something like monocrop farming, for example, which are easily surviving. And then they're not passing that on to us. Um, have, you, have you found that once you kind of clean up their diet and they've got more plants, but also better quality of plants, that that mm. starts to help with the gut motility and calm things, calm that inflammation down? Yeah, I think it depends on the individual and what's going on in their day-to-day -day life. But the first thing is, is that you notice a massive improvement because nutrition mm. is everything anyway. You know, mm. Once they stop over-consuming all the processed foods and the sugars and the other form of foods that are causing inflammatory triggering responses in the gut, they seem to start to do better. And then we can start to tweak from there. After I've done an initial stool analysis and seen what their bacteria is, you know, what's going on in their gut and what their forest looks like, basically, then we can start to tweak and change things um, as going forward. But yeah, it makes a massive difference. I don't think necessarily it's just about being an organic Nazi. Um, it would more that you, it's damage limitation. I understand that it's not in everyone's bracket to always eat organic. Mm. And you actually find that a lot of research out there is saying that organic foods are not much different to the non-organic foods. But do you know what? I, if you look at where those studies are, stemmed from most of the time it's from companies that have a, a gain for not being organic so like i'm a big advocate of people eating as best sourced food as possible it just makes sense eat things in the most wild natural forming food that we would have in the wild and that's what really i'm trying to do is trying to get people back to basics back to eating good whole foods um for their metabolic type and for them individually mm, you know and trying sure. to get that, that dysbiosis balance and what have you found with things like, because you talk about, you know, kind of people uh, going a bit, um, bit strong on things like organic, but what about gluten? What's your experience with that? Because some people are very, very anti-gluten. They think that it's very harmful for the gut. It's not mm. great for brain health either. Other people feel that, you know, if you're not celiac, then you can tolerate a certain amount, but maybe not too much. What's been your experience with gluten? in terms of gut I think, health? I think the key word that you said there was people can tolerate 
And I don't mm. think that's necessarily a good word when it comes to the human body. You know, like mm. toleration of a, of a substance shouldn't necessarily be the, the way going forward. I mean, in regards to uh, gluten, 90 to 80% of people cannot digest the molecule gliadin. And it damages our mucous membrane and our gut lining. And it just causes a massive inflammatory response in the, in the body. We are not meant to eat gluten. That is just, we're just not. You might be able to tolerate it. You might be able to consume it. You might not get any gut symptoms, but gut symptoms doesn't mean something's not going on in the gut that's problematic. That's the problem is that a lot of people find that by the time that they've got um, gut symptoms, that's when they think that they've had a reaction. So that's the problem. But you're already having a reaction in the body, in the system, before you've even had that, uh, that symptom in the first place. So people look at the diary and the constipation as, oh, I've had a bad reaction now. But you might have had a bad reaction. You just haven't had a symptom from it straight away. And what about the mental side? You know, you're not even thinking about that side. What about, have you had a bit of brain fog after you've had gluten and dairy? Have you had a bit of, um, has your mood changed a little bit the next day? People always go by the day when really some of these things can take three or four days for it to build up into the system and to make a response in it. So, you know, you, when you're having a bit of a mood swing or you're finding that your energy is a bit low or brain fog or you're not concentrating or you haven't got that recall um, for information straight away, that could be from the mass amount of gluten that you had on Saturday night, you know, um, and it's not till Tuesday when you're in a meeting and trying to go, oh, what was I trying to think about? You know, going sort of, sort of from there. Yeah, and you can experience that great brain fog. And let's talk then as well about mental health and people's lifestyles, because mm. this is obviously a huge factor. And, you mm. know, the kind of world that we're in in 2020, nobody could have predicted six months ago when we celebrated New Year's <laughs> Eve, you know, that, that this mm. is where we were going to be at the beginning of July. Um, and it's crazy out there, really, for a lot of people at the moment. Stress levels are super high. Um, and so for some people, that's because, you know, they're working from home and they're trying to combine that with educating children. Some people, unfortunately, yeah. are losing their jobs. And there's a whole range of um, issues. What can what can people do and what can they begin to notice? Because I think we do need to look inwards, as you say, and often stress plays a big part. And you were mentioning there that the gut really is like our first brain. Um, yeah. What can that's we do to help that stress? Yeah, that's, that's your opinion. Belief. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it's a bit of a, an out there opinion as well. I'm not saying that the gut is the the thinker. I'm just saying it's. Uh, I think we need to take more consideration to it than, mm. than we do at the moment. I know it's a lot more coming out about it, but you know, your your food is what produces hormones, and and hormones include neurotransmitters, and um, neurotransmitters then is how it's uh, put into the uh, nervous system. And, you know, it goes on this massive big loop. And if you're deficient in your um, your neurons and your, in your hormonal system, you're always going to be constantly deficient in other areas as well. So I found that what would happen is um, if you're constantly bombarding your food um, on a daily basis uh, with toxicity and keeping that toxicity nice and high, you'll find people that have bad mental health with a very bad diet. Um, that's, that goes hand in hand. And then the problem is they have low energy levels or they don't sleep. And then they wake up in the morning and they go and grab that cup of coffee or cortisol or, um, or sugar or the sugary snacks. And then it goes in this big, massive feedback, vicious loop um, where I'm seeing all the time. Straight away, when somebody comes to me with mental health problems, um, I look at their gut and I look at their 
childhood and trauma and what's going on there. Um, but straight away, I'll look at um, what's going on with their gut and what's going on in anything else, skin issues, all of that stuff. They all sort of link together. Yeah, presumably, like in women in particular, you'll see issues with their skin when they're not kind of detoxifying those hormones effectively. And that, again, mm. can be linked back to gut health quite often, can't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that quite often. I get a, a lot of clients that have hormonal issues, um, you know, eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, rosacea, and all of these most of the time are caused by a dysbiosis in the gut or some form of a leaky gut, um, which is either, you know, people will either believe in leaky gut or they won't. Um, I don't know how you can not believe in leaky gut because if your membrane and your mucosal lining is thin, then the quartz toxins are going to seep through into that and then cause a reaction in the body, an immune response. That's just how it's going to happen. And then that immune response causes an inflammatory triggering response to the, you know, the vagus nerve and into the brain. Our brain our, our brain then starts to think, oh, we're in trouble. Um, and then that's where it causes this anxiety in this uh, and then these low moods and these up and down swings that people sort of get on a day to day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And then, as you say, I think people look for more stimulants. I mean, I, um, as you know, I went through a period of, you know, quite sustained postnatal depression after having my children and ended up with pneumonia and was quite burnt out. And, and actually, I've underestimated how long that recovery has taken, because even recently, when I've done some testing, what I found actually is that my metabolized cortisol is really low. So um, mm, whereas salivary cortisol is a bit higher and that in the morning, but then it just flattens right off. And it's almost as if my body's trying to create cortisol to try and get me going um, mm-hmm. and to support the and, demands and of my lifestyle. Adrenaline. Yeah, exactly. And run on adrenaline. And I think the the mistake that people then make is they think, well, I need more coffee to get going, or I need to do another 10k run or another HIIT workout. And in reality, it's so hard as well for kind of type A personalities like me. But what I've had to do is actually dial it back and do less. And it sounds so crazy, because it's the opposite of what you feel. You're like, I need to do more, I need to do more. And actually, no, you need to do less. And that's when you start things start to rebalance. Um, but I think we push ourselves too hard. I think that's definitely the West mentality, though, isn't it? It's that very Yang mentality of do, 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 and no such thing as being or being quiet with yourself. One of my things I say to people on a daily basis is, is that if you're spending time working out, and that means expending energy and getting your heart rate nice and high, then you need to spend some time in the evening working in. Mm-hmm. So calming the nervous system back down again, especially with the bombardment we've got from social media and our phones and work and emails and notifications blinking and constant dopamine um, responses from the body. We need to calm our nervous systems down and we need to um, spend as much time recovering as we do pushing ourselves. But we're all in this huge mindset of do, do, do in this in this society. It's, it's nonstop. Um, so most of the time I'm telling people just slow down. It's all right. We don't need to succeed straight away every minute of every day. We don't need to grind hard and be up at four in the morning um, and, you know, sleep for three hours. And some of these silly things that you see uh, people that push, they push their ideas on people. It's yeah, it's like that whole kind of concept of the 5am club, isn't it? And not everybody is that even of that chronotype. Not everyone is an early yeah. morning riser. And if you're pushing I'm yourself. I'm definitely not. You're not. (laughs) Definitely not. No. And uh, I think that's what made me look into chronotypes because I was like, Mm. why am I not one of these early risers? Um, Why do I not get up with a load of energy and stuff? And it's actually because my brain switches on really late in the evening. 
and I've got all these ideas and I do all my best work in the evening. Um, but then I have to be very, very mindful of that and calm my nervous system down, put my phone away like we spoke about earlier and, you know, and I have to really concentrate on calming my nervous system down uh, before I relax and go to bed. Otherwise, yeah. I can be up there and I won't be able to sleep properly. Sure. So you need that wind down. But then I suppose you're at your most creative and you want to take advantage of that first. Yeah. Whereas yeah. for me, when I was a lawyer, that was out of completely out of alignment for me because I'm such an early morning person. So even with a sleep mask on and a full blacked out room, the, by yeah. half past five, six o'clock, I will just naturally be awake. So as a yeah. lawyer, they don't even start. They're not getting started till half nine, ten in the morning. You know, I've been up for five hours at that point. And then they're working on until midnight. It was just, that's, I think, what really mm. took it on my health. And I think people underestimate yeah. that because I was having to push at completely the wrong end of the day for me mm. um, when, I, when, you know, it wasn't the ideal time. But we were talking earlier and you mentioned there about, and I love what you said, that you treat your phone as an addiction. So at the same time that you fast from food, you fast from phone. Now, can you tell us more about that? Because one, one of those is helping with stress and the other mm -hmm. one is actually a mild dose of stress in terms of fasting, but it's really obviously mm -hmm. benefiting the health of your gut and the health of your body. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and what your kind of protocol is there? Yeah, so I get very, um, you know, I can get very bombarded with social media and constant uh, dopamine kicks that we're getting. And you've got to remember, you look on your phone, you've got all these little red blinks and notifications and emails to answer to and comments and likes and all these other things. And I just think that sometimes we can get bombarded with it. And we know that blue light is damaging for us in regards to sleep and our circadian rhythms. So when I, you know, it gets to a certain point, you know, this is a bit late for me even now, I turn all my electric off in my house. I only put some beeswax organic candles around the house and I put my phone in a little lockbox so I don't get tempted to, to get it out and check an email that's really important. Um, I lock it away. And whilst I fast my food and give my gut a rest, I um, give my nervous system a rest as well by fasting my phone as well. So I'm not constantly going back to it. I think we need to learn to calm ourselves that's what i talk about all the time is about calming our nervous systems and to give our bodies a bit of a rest from constantly being bombarded from food and toxicity and constantly being our mental stimulation so i'm trying to give my body a rest and my mind you know trying to get that link link sorted the mind and the body rest so then once i get into the evening i've put my phone away and lock it away in the evening um, i'll then spend the rest of the yeah, another hour of my time doing a bit of yoga or I have a magnesium bath, I'll read a book, only fiction, nothing that's brain stimulating, uh, no sort of self-help improvement books or anything like that, only stuff that makes me smile or that I like. Um, and I'll just sort of like, you know, and that's sort of what, what I do. But also with the phone fasting, what I do is, it's funny that I've made up this terminology, phone fasting. Um, <laughs> I do I do 48 hours once a week where I have I lock my phone away for 48 hours, no matter what's going on, I lock my phone away for 48 hours, two days in a row to give my body and my system a complete rest. I just feel it's, it really benefited my life and benefited the way how present I was during those days. And I spent those two days actually doing a lot more inner work and actually going to spend a bit more time meditating and maybe reading a bit more of a book that I wanted to enjoy or getting out in nature because I wasn't constantly distracted by my phone. Mm, That's just me personally. 
Mm. I was well. I was reading an article yesterday that said that the average person is checking their phone around 150 times a day, oh, and as you definitely. say, it's that it's that dopamine hit, isn't it? It's like oh, another message or another email, or another like, or and it's very very hard to um, to really relax and unwind. And I think putting it in the lockbox. It's interesting that you say that because that physically creates a barrier, doesn't it, to you actually going and getting that phone? Yeah, and for me, I needed. <laughs> I'm a sort of uh, all in, all out kind of guy, and I had to lock it away properly. Otherwise, I would just go and uh, sneak back in and take a look at the whatever's going on, or or my mum might try and call me, or any of these sort of things that are going on. I'll just want to make sure that uh, I'm keeping it away. So let's sort of talk. So you, because t- uh, I'm interested now in your routine, and this is also this is going to help people who are a kind of later chronotype as well but there's also some principles that I think we can draw out that can help everyone in terms of this relaxation can you talk me through what does this look you've mentioned that you have a period of fasting which I think you said was until midday what what does your morning and evening routine look like if we start with morning yeah so my morning routine is uh probably what I'm quite known for on my um, social media um because that's what I've put up most of the time and I start my morning um, I sleep on a grounding mat, so I make sure I'm sleeping on a grounding mat. My sleep is all, I'll talk about that in my evening routine, actually. So my morning routine, I wake up first thing in the morning and I start off with affirmations. So I'll just um, say some certain affirmations in my head that I've got that I want to manifest my future in a certain way. I might only say a few of them in my head. Um, I'll make my bed. I know it sounds silly. I'll make sure I make my bed. I open my curtains, so I'm getting all, I'm kick-starting my circadian rhythm and starting that light exposure. Um, I'll have a cold shower. Uh, whilst I'm in the cold shower, I will f- say three things that I'm grateful for. Um, I'll brush my teeth with my left hand. Um, so my opposite hand, which is the weird one that people are like, why do you do that? But it's actually for me, it's to really um, make me mindful and to bring me back in or uh, be nice and present because you've got to use the opposite hand and You've got all the neuroplasticity benefits there, et cetera. Mm. So it really makes me, you know, focus on brushing my teeth rather than aimlessly like brushing your teeth and not really thinking about it and damaging your gums. It gives me an actual time to go, actually, I'm brushing my teeth. I can be grateful that I'm brushing my teeth. Um, and and very deliberate I, about it, isn't it? That's the thing. You're being very mindful about what you're doing because actually it's quite hard as a right-handed person to, mm. to coordinate that. Yeah, it's it's actually really, really difficult. I'm actually starting to work on when I do uh, try to write, I actually try and write with my opposite hand as well. If you try, that's really, really difficult. Is, um, I used to be able, as a kid, I pretty much could swap between them, um, but yeah. I've definitely lost that over, over the years. Is it ambidextrous? Yeah. What's, the, what's the terminology? Ambidextrous, isn't it? Ambidextrous, ambidextrous yes, yeah. Uh, and then I'll hydrate, you know, so I'll make sure I get like a nice pint of water in with some Celtic sea salt, um, really get those minerals in and hydrate my gut and get everything working. You know, we're super dehydrated when we wake up in the morning. Um, I'll then go outside, have a, a herbal tea. Um, I might do some meditation in my little Zen den. Um, What's your Zen den? My Zen Den is a little space um, that I have in my home where it's just a little space for me where it's got like my little meditation pillows, got some nice little positive stuff in there. I've got like, you know, some incense going on and it's super relaxing and calming. There's loads of plants in there. Plants naturally calm our nervous system, funnily enough. Um, and it's just a place that I'll go to really, I go as soon as I go in there, I'm super relaxed already. So it's where I'll meditate, I'll do my yoga, I'll do some sort of 
you know, I'll listen to some podcasts if I want to and do that. So I'll do my meditation and stuff in there. And I might journal after the meditate. If anything came up for me in meditation, I might journal some of my thoughts that's happened or anything that's come up for me in particular and note it down. I'll do a bit of a stretch and yoga. Um, or if it's a nice day outside and it's nice and sunny, I'll go and do some like Qigong or Tai Chi and just get the body moving and the lymphatic system moving. Um, I like this because a lot of people try and do something really intense in the morning when cortisol is already rising. And I always think it's actually better to do something calming like this and parasympathetically based in the morning and then save that intensity for later in the day. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I think cortisol's already hit your body. That's Mm. how you're waking up. So your adrenal's already working. I don't want to constantly overstimulate that. That's what I spent my life and my younger years doing, uh, was overstimulating that, that, um, that cortisol response. So I would like to like to slowly build up my day with it. And that's through being nice and mindful, mindful. And I'm starting my day on a nice positive mindset. So, you know, it sounds like a lot because I've listed a lot of things, but a lot of these things I stack together and it doesn't take me any longer than 45 minutes to an hour. And that starts off my day. You know, the routine is, you know, it sets you up for life, I believe. I believe you can like take out some things, add in others. And sometimes I might not want to have a cold shower or I might not feel that I want to have a cold shower. So I won't. I might just, I might be planning to go down to the beach that day and jump in the sea. So that will be my shower, you know? So yeah. I, I don't necessarily do all these things rigidly. That's just one of the, that's sort of how I start my morning part of my day. And then obviously I'm working through the day and doing whatever I'm doing. And then, into my evening routine um as soon as the sun goes down i'll put some blue blocking glasses on um i haven't got them on today because we're speaking otherwise i look like a, a raver and <laughs> an eight an 80s raver because they're pretty extreme um so what I'll, time I'll is it on. now because obviously you're in australia so what time yeah. is it 10 to 9 so okay, normally so pretty normally all my electrics off in the house by now and there's right. only candles on okay. and i have um it's 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 the ying time the body so in chinese yeah. medicine it's about being ying in the evening so i make sure i put some socks on keep my feet warm and uh i start to calm my nervous system down and uh put the blue blocking glasses on put the candles on around the house um make sure i have a nice whole food dinner um about three hours before i'm actually looking to go to bed and if i'm watching tv with my partner we only consume things that make us smile or laugh so there's no drama there's no thriller there's no horror there's no nervous system stimulating stuff um we get this all day long constantly we're on our phones working we're constantly always stimulated that middle Mm. part of our day we are constantly bombarded so the morning and the evening are the times where I try to build up slowly to that cortisol response and then bring that cortisol response down again, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. So you're having, basically, you're having a digital sunset unless you're watching a program that, as you say, makes you laugh and is relaxing and then you'll wear mm. your blue blockers. Um, yeah. It's interesting. There's a couple of things you mentioned there that I found. I don't know. Do you measure your HRV at night? Do you track um, that? I, no, do you know what? It's something that I'm talked about a lot with biohackers and stuff. It's about do you measure your HRV, but I can get a bit too particular with data. Mm. And I'm all about trying to be intuitive with what my body's trying to tell me. And I want to try and be aware of what's going on. So that's where the meditation comes in. I want to feel what's going on in my body. I want to feel how my body feels stressed. I want to understand what's going on there. I know that I can't measure in between my heartbeats 
Um, but I will be able to uh, measure how my body and nervous system is feeling and I can sort of start to um, interact with that that way. You know, I can start to yeah. um, adapt as I go along. And then, you know, I think that's a really big thing in the evening. We have far too much blue light, far too much, um, far too much uh, stimulation in the evening. So I, like I said, I do like a yin yoga flow in the evening. So it's like a nice calming uh, yoga um, 10, 15 minutes. I'm not talking about an hour or two hours of yoga. I'm talking about 15, 20 minutes of calming the nervous system and getting all of that emotion that's in our tissues. You know, our issues are in our tissues. Mm. One thing I say on my social media all the time. So, you know, after we've had a really stressful day, we need to stretch out our fascia and we need to stretch out the emotion and get all of that emotion that we've pent up inside our bodies all the time and get it all out. So I do that through doing yoga and bioenergetics and things like that. Yeah, yoga is a great way to do that. And it's a much better alternative, let's face it, to pouring a, an alcoholic drink to try and basically numb out the day's stress, which I think a lot of people mm. feel that sense of relaxation, but actually moving your body at the end of the day, again, in a, in a gentle way, is really, really helpful. Do you, at any point during the day, have you completely now moved away from strength training or do you do any kind of cardiovascular or strength-based work apart from the yoga? Well, the reason that my all my obsession is about calming the nervous system is because my nervous system got really badly damaged when I was bodybuilding, strongman, fighting at a high level. Um, it was something that I actually had to learn to hack myself because if I ended up actually going to do a big training session, gym session, I can be really fatigued for two, three days after. So I'm still recovering from that now after four or five years of not doing any of that which was actually a blessing. And actually, I'm really grateful for it because it really taught me to go inwards and really taught me to mm. find these other sources that I never knew. Otherwise, I would have just trained, carried on training and never worked about it, you know? So, sorry, what was your question, Angela? Sorry, I... No, I was asking if you do any kind of, um, like, strength-based training at all, but you, I think you've answered it there. And it's... It, I mean, your experience is the same as mine. If you push too hard for too long, and I think mm. this is the thing I most want people to understand, is that you've got to go inwards, because if you do push too hard for too long, you end up like you and me, and it, and it takes so much longer. Whereas if you've got that balance, as you say, the yin and the yang constantly mm. that's what's going to keep you in a state of homeostasis you're going to be so much healthier as a result and I think it's quite hard because people naturally want to push that much more um you mentioned as well about that, that, sorry again yeah sorry sorry, sorry. so yeah. let's remember that homeostasis means balance mm. without yin we can't have yang and we can't have dark without light so we have to always try and find that balance um sorry to interrupt no, 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 not at all. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as well, I think when you talk about dark and light, people can feel quite dark sometimes and they want to block things out, but actually you've got to let the light in, haven't you? That's the thing. And that's yeah, the biggest thing lovely. I found getting over depression is you can't, mm. you can't close out the dark. You can only let the light in. And so for mm. me, I still have that. I still, there are still days um, where I wake up and I don't know why, you know, why do you wake up on that day just feeling quite down? You know, it's just a natural thing. And obviously it's a far mm. cry from the days that it would take two or three hours for my son to literally pull me out of bed. But it's like, well, how mm. can I change my thoughts and let the light in? Is there a different thought that I could have that might change yeah. my perception? And, and that actually is the biggest shift I've, I think I've made and that changes my day. And I think, as you've mentioned, that morning routine is so important because that's really what sets you up. Yeah. And I think there's something that you said there that you actually found really interesting about sometimes you can just wake up 
Um, and I've actually been doing a lot of studying and research into this and um, about why sometimes we can have everything going right, everything can be super optimal in our day, nothing going on in our day-to-day life, but we just wake up in a bad, bad way. We can wake up really anxious, really depressed, really in a bad way. And actually that sort of links to our dreams and trauma. So let's say, for example, you've got some form of, we all have, no one escapes childhood without some form of trauma. Um, Trauma not necessarily meaning something extreme, like it's all relative to the individual. So, you know, trauma can be abandonment or not having your needs met or any of those sort of areas. And what can happen sometimes is I feel that when we're in a dream-like state, our subconscious can then pick up on some of these triggering things that might happen in our dreams. And there's actually been some research behind that we can be triggered in our dreams for a trigger response that would happen in our childhood, and we wake up triggered in a triggered state. And that's why some... Have you ever had a dream where... How interesting. Uh, most of, Mm. where your partner has cheated on you or something, you wake up angry with them uh, for no reason or something along those lines. You hear that quite uh, quite a lot. And actually it's um, something that's a triggered response actually in the brain whilst we're sleeping. Our brain doesn't know the difference between sometimes what's real and what isn't. It doesn't know that a dream can be real or fake. It, we don't know we're in a dream state when we're dreaming, do we? Yeah. So we can wake up and we can already have these Let's say, for example, your trauma was that you was in a very horrible car accident and then you dream about a car accident. You can wake up with no idea of what's happening in the dream, but your subconscious and your body has. So you'll then wake up and go, oh, I'm in a really bad way. Why am I in a bad way? But you have no recollection of what's gone on in your dream. Yes, because you haven't remembered the dream. Absolutely. But the the mood has stayed with you. The feeling is there when you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just something you mentioned that I found that's something that I've been looking into recently. Um, and uh, there's a lot of research coming out about that. So, and I think uh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting area. Because I think the other thing I find is because you're kind of, you know, as you know, you go from beta to alpha to, to theta to delta or theta to mm-hmm. delta um, at, to go to sleep. And then obviously you come out the other way. And one of the biggest things I've learned is that as you come out and you're waking up, you're in that alpha brainwave state, you're highly, highly Mm. suggestible. And so at that point, you actually have the most control over how your day is going to go. Because in that highly suggestible state, you mentioned you do your affirmations. And I will often visualize, or I may even meditate before even getting out of bed. Because at that Mm. point, you you can influence the subconscious mind so much more than you can by the time you've put your foot down and you've started engaging with those thoughts or whatever it is or whatever anxiety you have and, you know, thinking, oh my God, I've got this meeting, that meeting today, I've got to go through my emails. Then suddenly you've moved into high beta already. Whereas when you're in that alpha brainwave state, you actually can kind of change direction in in a sort of a more Mm. flowing way, I've found. Yeah, definitely. And that's pretty much, I think we're pretty much the same there, Angela, because I'd done the same thing. I would um, find that, you know, your brain is really in that sort of uh, still in that sleep state. And like you said, in the, uh, as you're waking up. So I want to make sure that it starts off in that right. It's really plasticky, the brain when mm. it's waking up. We, we're still trying to make sense of like what's going on. Um, and that's a perfect time to hit it, hit it right there and start it right away with a positive thing a positive mindset so I really hate that terminology actually positive mindset but one thing I do with my clients that are really struggling with their depression I'm, I, I get them getting up first thing in the morning and saying things no matter how hard it might seem to say one thing that they're grateful for or that the fact that they're lying in bed and they've got a bed 
or that there's something good that's going on. If they don't want to do affirmations, not everyone's up for doing affirmations, but just one or two things that we can be grateful for. And just to start that that day in a positive uh, state of gratitude, I just think it's great. I agree. I think gratitude is so powerful. We do it as a family at dinner. When we sit down in the yeah, evening, yeah, yeah, we get yeah. around with the kids and we talk Amazing. about what are, you, what are you grateful for? And then and then we'll all exchange what happened during that day. But affirmations Perfect. are not well understood. And as you say, a lot of people find them difficult. So if someone mm. wants to begin with affirmations, what would mm. you recommend? Should they sit down and kind of brainstorm what it is that they want to manifest or create? Or is it about taking more of because people use affirmations for different things, right? Some people will use them for creating wealth. Other people will use them because they want to create a sense of self-confidence. What, mm. um, what, when you use affirmations, are you using them in different ways with yourself and your clients? Can you elaborate a bit more on that and how people might start to use affirmations if it's not something they've been comfortable with before? So I think it's good to know what an affirmation is. An affirmation is like a positive statement declaring specific goals, you know, in a completed sort of set series. And and although that they they're, they're sort of like mantras in a session in a way. And I guess always coming back to why you're doing it and your intention behind it. So I think having an intention behind why you're doing an affirmation, and if it's you're struggling with mood, then to uh, put some intention behind your affirmations of doing something reg- about your mood that, you know, I am feeling happy or I am, um, uh, you know, I am full of abundance or whatever it is that your goal is for this future manifestation of yourself and how you're going to feel or how you want your day to progress, then to start with saying it like it's already happened, you know, and then your subconscious brain will start to take note of that. And it's that rewiring, isn't mm. it? It's, you know, like it say, is. for example, you go, oh, I'm stressed. I'm really stressed today. Oh, I've got no energy. Your brain's like, okay, I can believe that. You're telling <laughs> yeah. me that it is. I believe that. Of course it is. It's going to do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to listen to what you do. And then we build those neuro pathways. Um, and they start to ingrain in the brain of all these negative feedback loops. So when I've got certain clients, I'm trying to sort of build a new pathway. And really start paving the slabs for something positive and it feels really alien to them because they've fought in such a negative feedback loop for so long so if anyone's struggling with affirmations i would probably recommend that they um you know go on youtube and have a type in affirmations just have a look and put in something on youtube and type in affirmations and just listen to them for five minutes you know it's don't go on anything else's else and, initially yeah 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 it's an yeah, easy way to get a, started and then that can just give you an idea of what you want to do for your own affirmations in the future. You know, you can sit down and write about them. You know, it's a perfect thing to do in the evening when we're in that yin flow, while you're having a magnesium bath in the evening. You could sit in there with a little notepad and pen and go, okay, what do I want to feel like tomorrow? Mm. Or what does future Angela look like? You know, what does she look like? How does she interact with people? What is that? You know, really nail down those goals and those whys of who you want to be in the future. And it's a fun thing to do. Like I yeah, love it doing fun. it. I love, I love, like I get so excited about manifesting my future that I'm, I'm excited for it to happen. So I'm like, oh, this has already happened because I've manifested it. And it sounds a bit of a, a, a bit of a woo woo way to say things, but we are what we think. I believe I really do. And yeah. our thoughts, our thoughts are, you know, thoughts are anabolic and they can be very, um, very powerful. Very powerful. And as you say, you're basically creating your ideal life, but also your your ideal self 
as well. I think we all too regularly put up with something um, that's going wrong, maybe in one area or is a little bit inadequate. But I think what people don't realize is that those areas then spill into everything else because everything is connected. So it's impossible to kind of let go in one area and just say, well, I'm never going to be really slim or I'm never going to have wealth or I'm never going to have this. Mm. If you let one area go, actually that then feeds onto the other areas. Because, for example, people that are not happy with the way that they look, if they feel that there needs a change that needs to be made, then I would encourage them to make that change. It's about feeling secure and happy within themselves. But if they're not feeling secure and happy because of the way that they are, then they can't then feel confident doing the things that they want to do. It just starts or or confident wearing the clothes that they want to wear. They don't, it spills into other areas. And I think that's the thing is to really think, you know, what, who do you want to really, really be and connect and who yeah. are you inside yeah. and connect with that? But yeah, the group, the bath is a great time to do it. Have you used any kind of hypnosis at all where you, you know, you can kind of go up into, I was trying out some of Marissa Pierce, um, down oh, yeah. a very interesting yeah, yeah. where you sort of roll your eyes upwards and yeah, then they, yeah. they immediately, when you look up, you know, they immediately start to flicker and you get that rapid eye movement that you get that's similar in REM sleep. And mm. that's almost a way to access those alpha brainwaves quite quickly and get into yeah. the subconscious mind. Have you done any of that? It's quite interesting. I have actually. And it's uh, it's funny you say that because that's the very science way of, of looking at it. And that's how you've broken it down to understand it. But in the yogic philosophy, it would be that that's your third eye and you've got chakras above there. So that when Mm. we start to look up in those areas, that will start to in tune you with that, you know. So it's really good to break it in with science and also about that east meets west and try to understand it that way. And I think we use a lot of science to understand some of the things that we might not fully understand completely, you know. And I think you touched on something there about um, what happiness is with... um, what happiness what ha- what happiness is to the individual and i i think i think happiness is a really overmarketed term mm. i don't necessarily believe in happiness i know that sounds a bit of a strange thing to say i just think that sometimes happiness can be what we've been conditioned to believe is happy when we have this body when we have these abs when we have this car when we have this house when we have this family and we have these kids we'll be happy it's all about happiness um, happiness, happiness, happiness. When I think what my goal and strive and some of my clients is, is don't strive for happiness, strive for contentment. Strive mm. for contentment of what you've got right now and strive for that. You can still want to manifest more. That's okay with that. But just strive for the contentment of what is right now rather than striving for this constant, I'll get there and I'll be happy and I'll get there and I'll be happy. But sorry, that was completely not what you asked me about. No, but it's absolutely true. Um, It's a very good point. It's about being, isn't it? That's the thing. It is about being. That's it. Um, My recent post, I literally did about that. It's about just being and trying to let go. And we don't control anything. We can't control nothing. Anything can happen at any moment. We have no control over anything. You can do all the biohacks in the world. You control all your external sources as much as you like. But anything can happen at any moment. And if the universe comes knocking, you've got... You know, like when you was burnt out and you was you're depressed and yeah. you had all of these other complications that were going on, that was the universe knocking for you to change your life. And you did. And now you're helping others with that, you know, and that's sort of, you've, we've got no control. So we just need to relax and realize that we're not in control. And once we do that, it becomes a little bit more easier. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I love the um, the East. And I want to kind of just before we finish, talk a little bit about that, because you do very much combine 
the science, which, as you say, is great for the logical mind and try to explain things. But these Eastern philosophies, I just find so so fascinating. And it's definitely an area that I've had to build over time. Um, I'm one of my favorite ever books is the seven spiritual laws of success by Deepak Chopra. I just think it's just yeah. amazing. I just, wow. It's such a small book. It's an amazing yeah. book, isn't it? I just think, and I, I read it. smallest books are the best. I do. Yeah, yeah. I do as well. Um, there's some other, yeah, good ones as well, like the four agreements and who moved my cheese. This is, there's books you can find that are so yeah. easy. But so talking about the chakras, because this actually has a big element in terms of balancing our systems and um, mm-hmm. both our mental health and our gut health. And there are, yeah. from my understanding, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, it's just a growing interest of mine. Um, yeah. We can get energy blocks. Now, how can we understand how those energy systems work and how can we kind of alleviate those blocks so that we've got more kind of that chi free flowing energy. Yeah. I mean, um, I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you what we can do for those certain individual blocks, but I definitely believe in that the energy and they can get stored. That's why acupuncture works. There might not be a lot of science behind acupuncture and meridian lines and energy, but we are energy. Mm. If you think that this is what I mean, don't forget, I come from a science background. And I've only learned this stuff when I realized that science can't always give me the answers because it can't. There are some things when I've gone into really deep, long meditation uh, retreats where I've done silent 10-day retreats, and there's things that science cannot explain. There are things that we can't explain. But ayahuasca trips and plant medicines and all of these um, plant medicines that are coming out at the moment, we can't explain those. And no way can science try to explain them either. Um, and it's the same with chakras and, and uh, our energy centers. And you get a lot of time that people get blocked in certain areas. That's a thing that you see in the yogic philosophy. Like, you know, it's like our, our pelvic area can be really trapped for a lot of women because of their womb space and their, their pelvic floor. And after they've given birth and this disattachment that we've got with that area sexually. Um, as a society, we don't talk about sex. We're scared of our organs. We're scared of all these um uh, this sort of that sort of area so it can start to become blocked in those areas and it's like working through with energy stuff and energy work is a is a good way of being able to try and to release that and again that's a thing why I do um, intuitive stuff rather than collecting all the data and start going on the data I tried to you know I used to collect all the data but I found I was concentrating more on the data rather than I was concentrating on myself and what was really mm-hmm. going on so I try to, you know, it's good for a while. It's like tracking your food, isn't it? And tracking your calories and tracking your nutrients. Great. Do it for a while, but then go back and see what's actually going on a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that. And I think you only do it for a short term to kind of understand what it means. Um, mm. The reason I'd mentioned the HRV earlier was I was picking up on what you said about reading fiction or watching something that made you laugh and mm. or was happy, you know, more of a kind of upbeat thing rather than a drama that was anxiety inducing or stimulating. Because what I found with my own HRV is that if I read books, as you were saying, like business-based books, and I thought just because I love what I do, I was always reading them. Actually, if I read fiction at night, my heart rate variability is much better because I've switched off. Um, And sometimes that can just give us like the push we need, doesn't it? Um, In terms of, have you done anything with yourself with plant medicine in terms of ayahuasca and things like that? Have you had any experience? I've had some experience to some extent, um, but not ayahuasca as such. I'm looking to actually go to Peru and uh, do that 
as a with a shaman and actually have some respect over the plant medicines and stuff you get a lot of people nowadays that seem to do it in their house and in their room mm. and they have really bad trips from it i'm actually helping a client currently at the moment that's had a got really bad neurological symptoms from doing ayahuasca on their own um and they can't hardly talk and they're having really bad cognitive problems so people think it's a quick fix because it's going to fix all of their problems mm. do not treat it that way it's no. a very 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 serious substance and it needs to be treated with a lot of respect and you need a lot of intention behind why you're doing it before you even decide to do anything like that um because there are some places in london aren't there that you can go and you have the um what's that is it the frog poison that you put in the arm and then people are kind mm. of quite violently sick initially um but it can be quite dangerous Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of that one, but they get these kind of enlightening experiences. But as you say, they're mm. not done in their traditional setting. Um, it's kind of like in someone's apartment or flat, and then you've got these sort of sick buckets. And it, it's, I, think, I think you really need to be ready for that sort of thing. If you're a very, what I call plugged in person, um, and really like sort of in the day to day of working and and buying and consuming and then you decide to go and do a plant medicine ayahuasca trip it's going to open up a lot of stuff for you and a lot of stuff that you might not be ready to deal with a lot of people that go into these ayahuasca retreats with chronic illness and stage four cancer come out cured because they've dealt with a lot of the trauma and stuff that's been festering in their lives for so long and they have these healing reactions from these things and sometimes people can go into them and it can bring up a lot of these traumas and then they're not ready to deal with them at face value there and then and it can be a really you know don't get me wrong i think ayahuasca is amazing i think it'll be a great source for people but i think you've got to be ready for it and they say that in ayahuasca terms that the plant medicine calls you and that's when you go and uh, interact with it you don't just willy-nilly go and do it in some um clinic or something mm. it's got to be treated with the right shamans and they fast you for a certain amount of time before doing so and give you the right diet and then they they try um small doses of ayahuasca before they put in other plant medicines and there's a there's a there's a reason why they That's do what they do interesting so it's a much gentler approach than how we're seeing it done in the west actually yeah. from what you're saying yeah. it's a much gentler approach and kind of almost yeah. getting the mind ready for what's going to happen yeah it is yeah. it really is yeah it's uh it's, it's crazy you know and the, the the thing is that sometimes you'll get a lot of people um doing these plant medicines and they'll be shaking and trembling non-stop and their uh, their whole body will be quivering and shaking and what's actually going on there is their body's now doing the response that it should have done at the time that that trauma was present so i'm a big believer in trauma release work and actually shaking our body out with bioenergetics and actually uh, releasing trauma because when something happens to you angela and something that really scares you you we we put our shoulders up and we hold it all in tight and we don't shake because shaking is a vulnerability and to show that we're weak, to show weakness. But if you look at animals in the wild, a zebra that runs away from a lion, what does it do? It shakes all its body. When a dog has a fight with another dog in the park, they shake after. Mm. Uh, as humans, we naturally used to do that after we mm. finished hunter-gathering. We would come back after our we picked up all our food for the night, and we'd dance around a fire and shake, you know, and we'd dance, yeah, and we'd get, all of that, we'd get all of that emotion out of our tissues. But that shaking um, is actually wonderfully relaxing. It's like amazing. If you get on a kind of mini trampoline and sort of bounce mm. and just shake your body, it feels absolutely incredible. Um, I don't know a lot about... hmm? I guess you're just letting it all go. You're just letting letting go of everything. 
Um, what is before before we close? What is bioenergetics? How can people use that? Is that kind of consciously like shaking out the body and letting go? Yeah, so pretty much like um, bioenergetics or the full body orgasm, I call it. My social media is where I'll go outside. <laughs> I'll go outside. It's not. It's not as. Good, it's not as good as a full. Body Are your neighbours watching this? Oh, my neighbours must look in my 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 garden and be like, "What is this guy what doing? What is he doing um, now?" <laughs> I'll go outside and in the garden, and I'll just literally shake my body. I'll just shake it all, shake my hands, shake my feet, shake my legs. Like I'll scream if I feel I need to. Maybe not scream, but I'll get any energy out of my body, get my tongue out. And it's something that we used to do tribally, but we don't now because we're so, it's not socially acceptable to go and do that in the park. And I understand that, <laughs> but this is a, this is a natural mechanism that we used to do in our day-to-day life. And we don't do it anymore. So with trauma release stuff is exactly the same. It's about sh- putting the body into certain positions to prompt shaking, to release tremors in the fascia, so that it stimulates a response to the brain to go, ah, oh, I can calm. It's okay. I can calm them. So it actually calms the nervous system down um, from doing it that way. So, yeah, you just go outside and just shake the body. After a stressful event, if I've had a really stressful phone call or um, I've took on a lot of energy from a client that's going through a lot of traumatic stuff and I take on board a lot of that, I'll go outside and I'll just shake my body. Just shake it. Just get all that energy out of my tissues. Just get it out. Yeah, I'm going to try that more often. The mind stores tension in the body. Mm, It does. It does. And uh, yeah, you have definitely dump it in certain stress places like your lower back and it's a good dumping ground. Yeah, and especially for females, it's that pelvic floor area. I just uh, that's so important for them to release some of that I meant that that tension that's in that area. It's an area that never gets stretched, and an area that never gets massaged, and an area that women get massively disconnected from. And that is again that root chakra. So you can link the science with the what's going on uh, on an energy level as well. And once female clients of mine start to release that pelvic floor area and start to move into it with certain mobility and using certain balls and techniques to release the fascia there it sends a signal up to the brain to release it and they get huge emotional releases from it again How because interesting. The body- so what so so you're saying that women get particular tension in the pelvic area is this is this just after pregnancy or generally speaking both but especially after especially after pregnancy so if you look at what happens in um eastern cultures uh can't remember exactly what tribe it is but um a woman will give birth and two um two mid they will she will have two midwives and those midwives will hold her up either there'll be one either side and hold her up completely to let her body tremble and shake to release all of that emotion um, and they're not allowed to sit back down, the woman that's pregnant, the woman that's just given birth, until that energy has come out of her body. And they've been doing that for years, and they didn't oh. learn that through science. That's just something that they do. But the pelvic floor area is, you know, women after they've given birth, they sort of, it's, they can get thrust into a hospital, have a, an emergency C-section, have no um, real uh, connectivity with the process of the birth. And then they lose the sort of connectivity with that pelvic floor area. And then this sort of, the pelvic floor, the fascia starts to calcify and starts to really get hard and tight. And then the more that pelvic floor area gets tight, that pelvic girdle gets tight. The psoas gets tight. Then the lower back problems start. They start having problems when they're laughing, they're urinating when they're laughing or jumping. And this is all down to that pelvic floor area. Hence why, 
you know, um, doing certain pelvic floor like Kegels um, and breathe, certain exercises they give to certain women to strengthen that area. In France, for example, they give you six weeks of training on strengthening your pelvic floor after you've given birth. But in America and UK and stuff, it's not even a thing. No, it's not even a thing. And it's really interesting that you say that because actually, so the reverse happened with me. I was given an emergency C-section with my first one and, and the other mm. two had to be C-section because I have pelvic disproportion. But what happened mm. is, and you sign away these rights in that emergency section, is it knocked off the communication between that area and my brain. So I thought that it was severe pain that was stopping me from walking when I was discharged. It turns mm. out that it was actually, and I thought I had a urine infection. It turns out that actually I wasn't able to go to the toilet. And it was only because a very, an experienced midwife came to the house who said to me, why are you walking in that way? And I was like, well, it must be the C-section. Mummy asking, and, how was you walking? Well, I was walking what did in it look like? discomfort, holding it, but actually what was happening, unbeknown to me, I thought I'd got an infection as a result of the surgery. So they'd put me on antibiotics, but I found it, I thought I had something like cystitis, I couldn't go to the toilet. In actual fact, what was happening was that I was retaining all of the water. So they were saying, well, because you're breastfeeding, make sure you're drinking lots of water. So I was drinking more and more and more, and that water was not coming out. So it was building mm. up. In the end, I ended up having about two and a half liters drained off. It was, you know, risking kind of renal failure because eventually the water mm. will just go back up. But it had knocked those receptors. But, you know, they'd gone in emergency, okay? So it's pretty messy. And at the end of the day, they saved my child, which I'm ever eternally grateful for. Yeah. But it took, I think, six weeks for me to retrain the receptors to know that actually I needed to go to the loo because what happened was... I wouldn't be, the message wouldn't come. And so the water would just fill up, fill up, fill up. And eventually, you know, they were constantly scanning me to see what was left because mm. I couldn't clear it. I'd then go to the toilet because I knew I had to go. And it's the opposite to what most women experience because obviously, as you say, they sometimes what they'll find is if they're jumping, the pelvic floor isn't strong enough. For me, it was, I was re just retaining all that that fluid, which is quite dangerous. Um, but yeah, that whole area, and it, and it was very, um, you know, there's a lot of scarring and, kind of gluing together and you're right i mean it's it's um it's difficult to get over isn't it yeah it's and there's a lot of tension i think um it's, yeah, well it's it's as, this, as you probably know the psoas is our stress muscle isn't it it's mm. our fight or flight muscle and if that is overly stressed from the amount of sitting that we do and in cars and in that internally rotated position when we're stressed people's psoases are so tight and we're like clams and we're internally rotated like a clam and then once we start to stretch out that psoas, the people start to relax because their nervous system goes, oh, we're not stressed anymore. Um, and it calms it out and then it sends a signal up to the brain and goes, actually, we can calm down now. But a lot of women are completely disattached from their pelvic floor area at all. And you just, what happened with yours was that you probably went through so much trauma in some way or another, or your body did, or a subconscious level. And then what's actually gone on is your brain's just gone, I'm going to disconnect from this. I'm not mm. going to do this anymore. I'm going to disconnect from this completely and I'm going to pretend it's not going on. And then you've, that's why you've had to do that sort of retraining and build those neuro pathways back into it because you had such a traumatic experience or your body had a traumatic experience from that, that thing. That's just actually, my view. Well, uh, no, I think you're absolutely right because the only way that I could get the connection back was by being present. So, uh, you know, it's hmm. a bit like there's lots of things. If you try and fall in love, you can't, right? You'll never find anyone. Love happens to you. If you try to go hmm. to sleep, 
sleep just comes upon you if you're relaxed. And it's the same thing. <laughs> I don't believe we talk about this on a podcast, but it's the same thing going for a wee. You cannot force yourself. It just has to happen. And to get that neurological connection back, I actually had to read, you know, what was on the soap dispenser next to me or something that rela- it's interesting you say that, that mm. actually just allowed my mind to completely relax. And then the connection was, but it, it took a long, long time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. It's also as well. The last thing I'll say about that is that we also go to the toilet so wrong. And, you know, one of the things I spoke with Lauren Roxby, who's the pelvic floor sort of specialist in this area, was that she said the first thing she gets women to do is actually pee in the shower in a squat position. Because um, that's how naturally we were meant to go to the toilet. I use a squat potty. So my mm. knees are actually higher than my hips. So my gut is actually great for gut health and actually clearing out the colon of all the fecal matter. And that's how we naturally are meant to go to the toilet. We weren't supposed to sit on the toilets. We were meant to squat in a hole and go to the toilet and do our business. And that's another reason why our pelvic floors, men and women, are getting so calcified and not used because we're going to the toilet in the wrong positions that we were mechanically made to do. And the squatty potty basically elevates your feet slightly higher, doesn't it? So it's creating a better angle. Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're, you're not at that 90-degree angle. Your knees are nice and high, which is to uh, emulate that squat position, which is where our gut is actually meant to be like that. It's not at an angle. Our colon is nice in a nice line. Our spine's nice and straight. So that means our body's like, oh, I just need to go to do my business. When you, you go from using a toilet to using a squat potty, you see such a huge difference in how you feel on a day-to-day basis. It's one of the things I give to all my clients with gut health is make sure they're squ- using a squat potty. They're like, oh, I thought you were going to give me a probiotic. I was going, no. Let's do the basics and get you pooing properly first. Yeah. And then let's um, start to work on your psoas and pelvic floor because if the psoas and pelvic floor is too tight, the gut's not going to set sit in the optimal place because it's going to be stressed. You've got to remember that area, that pelvic girdle, is where our gut sits. And if the psoas is um, uh, tight, which the psoas links behind the gut to the back of the spine, if that's tight and pulling, it's pulling all the gut in super tight, then the gut's sending a signal to the brain saying we're stressed. So it all works in a huge, big and how can you release the psoas muscle? What's the best technique that people can use? You've mentioned so obviously you use, going to the toilet with a squat potty, and I'll put that in the show notes. But how how can they ease off the psoas psoas muscle? Sorry. So we use a little ball. Um, it's a sphere ball. I can just uh, I just grab it quickly. I don't know if people are going to be able to view this or they're just going to listen to it. Um, we'll we'll put some video content up as well. Okay, that's bigger than I thought. Okay, so that's uh, that's so that's like like, I was thinking that you were going to be talking about a tennis ball size. This is this is quite a bit bigger. So people that use a tennis ball, it's too hard, and it's too again, it's it's that it's that whole I'm going to grind into it. And what the way you want to look at massaging the pelvic floor and the psoas is, you want a ball that's about sixty to seventy percent filled up. You don't want it a hundred percent full because it's too too much for the body. You've got to remember the psoas holds a lot of emotion for us. And the pelvic floor for women holds so much, so much emotional stuff that's unreal. So when they start really nailing into it and doing it all the time, they get huge emotional stuff. My partner, when she started doing this work, um, started bursting out into tears, crying for no reason. Okay. She had nothing else going on. And she'd uh, use that. So you've just put this on the pelvic floor area and the psoas. 
you just rock back and forth on it, breathe into it, relax into it. So hang on, so you're laying, this is going underneath your back or you're laying on your tummy? So this is going just on your... This is so you, I start with actually going on the gut first to okay. uh, to massage the inner part of the gut, so behind that psoas wall, um, and then I start going right down to that pelvic area, so just above your genitals or just above your pelvic uh, pubic bone, and then rocking. So the the pelvic area like that is like a, a little hammock basically, mm-hmm. and you're wanting to um, massage in the pelvic bone area, so massaging it rocking side to side like you're trying to knead dough you're trying when you need dough to make a pizza you stretch it out and go back you stretch it out and go back rather than pound it mm-hmm. to make it release you want to sort of do it nice and gentle and then what that does is that sends a signal to the brain and actually we're not in trouble and it starts to send a signal relax the fascia get blood into the area get it uncalcified and actually get it moving and mobilizing it properly. So it's not about having a strong pelvic floor. It's about having a mobile or flexible pelvic floor and psoas area. Interesting. So this tension that you're talking about, because I haven't heard anyone, this is not well talked about, is it? And it's very interesting what you're saying, because I want more women that are listening to understand this, because a really common thing that you hear from women as well is once they've had a baby, they kind of... Mm. They are tense and it's almost like they've then switched off for a bit. Like uh, there's, I think there's a bit of fear factor actually that if you have sex again, you might have another baby quite quickly. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's natural. But I also think, you know, for, for some couples, actually that, that bit, once they've had the kids they want to have starts to fall away. Um, and they're not as intimate. They're not as physical with each other. And do you think that that in part is that the woman is feeling you know a degree of stress and locked up tension from that pelvic area because it's that almost needs releasing oh 100 some of the, the main things that you'll see with people that have or women and men i don't need to put men out of the picture here in this because mm-hmm. i've used this myself and i use this with medical clients is if your entire body constantly feels tense and is in pain or you get pain during sex after you've had kids or leaking urine um you know uh when you're exercising or laughing or have a sneeze that's quite common and it's like oh that's okay i've had kids that's not normal to Mm. happen that's not a normal thing but women when they've had kids they're automatically um told that that's just a normal part of, of 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 childbirth and you should accept that and move on from it and then you get all these lower back pain problems because the pelvic floor is tight it's going to pull in that pelvic girdle it's going to pull in that lower lumbar area you know, and then what are women mostly doing all the time, especially in their city, walking in heels. So they're getting no glute activation. So their glutes aren't even working either. So their whole hip girdle gets super tight. And they've got this inability to connect with their core and what's actually going on there. And then you find that those women that have got really tight psoases and pelvic floors have a pooched lower belly, that lower belly sort of pooch area because oh, they're, yeah. they're not connected with it, you know. And another thing that's a little bit out there is they have difficulty orgasming because they have pain during sex. So because they're so tense and that area is so emotionally tight, especially after giving birth. So it's about connecting back with that area and about massaging into it and and getting to know it again, really, and starting to understand and feel for it and being intuitive with it. And there is no amount of data that you can use to connect Mm. with this stuff. You've just got to feel it and get into it. 
That's really and interesting. On, it's the opposite to what a lot of people say, which is that, you know, for those women, you need to strengthen your pelvic floor. You need to do a lot of Pilates and pelvic floor exercises. Whereas actually what you're saying is you need to just loosen the whole thing a little bit. Yeah. And the yogic philosophy believe that if you've got a, a um, very tight uh, pelvic floor area and your it's not releasing that in that um, root chakra, they believe it's like there's a, the saying behind it is that there's a lack of support at home. You've got not feeling grounded and weak financial foundation. And this is stuff that Lauren Roxburgh talks about in her book. Um, all, you know, pretty much that's what she, all she talks about. And it's actually really interesting. Um, I had an interview with her not long ago. That's on my Instagram now uh, talking about all these areas. Um, that's fascinating. Lauren Roxburgh, what was the book that she wrote? And I'll link to this Lauren, in the show notes and also to your interview. The power source. The power source. Called. I How believe. fascinating! I will link and to that. And she, she was actually one of the biggest specialist body workers in America. She worked with LeBron James, Gwyneth Paltrow, like she was the top top dog with this. Um, and then realized that all the science matched up with a lot of the uh, Eastern philosophies. And then she combined the East and West and the science and the spirituality, and then they combined it together fascinating wow well hopefully that's helped many of the female listeners um that's so interesting because i love things that are just seem counterintuitive to what's the norm right what you've just said is you know most people are busy trying to strengthen that pelvic floor even more and probably adding mm. to that tension that's there um which is uh oh, absolutely fascinating um is there anything else, Ryan, that you would like to talk about? I feel like we could go on forever. I'm probably going to have to probably, invite you back, yeah. to be honest, because there's so much here. But is there anything that we haven't covered before I let you actually no, go to bed? Uh, I mean, no, it's fine. Um, I I think I could go on about so many different subjects. But uh, we came on board talking about gut health and mental health. We and ended up talking about pelvic floor. And, uh, I know. And, and squat, squat potties. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um let's let's close with what are your top top three things that have inspired you along the way they could be books they could be people that you've spoken to what are the kind of top three things that come out for you on this journey that you can impart and share with others or maybe it's even your own stuff Mm, great great question I'll think about that for a little bit. Yeah, think about it. Um, I will obviously include everything that we've talked about in the show notes. And I'll also link to your Instagram account because you're hugely active on there. Um, You are like the amount of content you put out, particularly for somebody who has 48 hours without their phone is extremely (laughs) impressive. (laughs) (laughs) no very consistent with your message to help um a lot of people um so yeah but um what would be your top three i would say connect back with nature would be my mm. first one we are na- we are nature we forget that we're nature we think that we're better than nature and we've got more answers than nature and nature was literally showing us what it can do now like it's doing now in this current climate mm. um you know so we need to connect back with nature connect back with our roots it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to go and be a tree hugger it just means that you can go out get your feet in the ground ground down get those good electric uh, negative ions in the body um and just connect back with our roots you think about when you go into a spa 
area or you go to have a massage, what do they play in the background? Tweeting birds, sea noises, or a log fire, or uh, whale noises. They're all noises of nature that calm our nervous system because that's where we're meant to be and our bodies are craving it and we've disattached from that. So I'd definitely say nature. Um, nature's patient isn't she that's the thing as well she's powerful but very patient we're always rushing yeah that's it and i think nature if when you sit down and watch a sunset it doesn't just happen dramatically does it no you just it it happens it happens nice and slowly and you sit there and the problem is most of the time we don't want to actually sit and watch the things that take a while because we don't want to feel the feelings that's one of the biggest things that Mm, people see they don't want to actually they don't actually want to sit there because they want to do because the more they do, the more they don't they feel they don't feel. Mm. And they're actually scared of what their feelings are going to show. They, it makes them feel anxious or it brings up certain emotions. Mm. So nature can be very calming for the body, especially like, you know, forest bathing, going into a forest and just, you know, walking around in a forest. No one will ever go into nature that is superiorly anxious and depressed that won't feel good after a walk in nature. It's impossible. Mm. There is now they're doing studies on the on the thing called the free day effect, which is about people that have severe PTSD that go into nature and they come back and all their symptoms of PTSD are completely gone after three days. Don't Amazing. get me wrong, they come they come back, yeah, but their yeah, symptoms but massively reduced. Um, nature walk is my favourite thing in the morning. That is what I do when I wake up after meditating. I go for a walk with my dogs. More difficult between November and February, but from sort of March right through to the end of October, it's just amazing. It's such a great start to the day. My little thing would be take your shoes and socks off and get your feet in the ground as well yeah. while you're doing it. You know, yeah, dogs are very grounding on their own. Yeah, you know, they they're are. connected to the floor at all times. So, um, yeah, definitely do that. And what was the actual question for doing the actual three? Why was I picking? Well, there was, it was two things, (laughs) three things. No, there's two left. Three things that you could impart to people that that nature one is an amazing one of either things, suggestions that you can make or things that have inspired you. Like you were talking about Lauren Roxburgh there and her work or books that you've read, just three things that people can take away. And I've definitely got that nature walk being one of them. Um, I mean, you shared um, so much, to be honest, and, and uh, it's been a very, very informative interview. Um, what's your favourite fast. book? Hmm? Fasting, oh, yeah. Fault. Oh, we never got into your fasting properly. Yeah, yeah. so I would say I would say fast and um, fast your phone and your, your food. We don't need mm. to constantly bombard our, ourselves with constant food and constant stimulation, fast ourselves. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to go into the science of what women should do and men should do about fasting, um, but we don't necessarily always need to be consuming both what goes in our brain and what goes on in our body. So more we consume, you know, what we consume comes on many levels, um, the people we have in around us, to our thoughts, to what we watch on the media and what we watch on the news. The third thing will be don't watch the news. <laughs> Don't watch my, third thing would be, my third thing would be don't watch the news. I know it sounds like you can be updated to it, um, but don't watch the news. It's just not good for the, the nervous system. When do you go on the news and it's ever anything positive? It's never anything good. Stabbings, killings, shootings, diseases, people dying. It's just constant fear mongering all the time. What do people watch in the morning when they wake up? They put on the TV in bed and watch the news. And then they go to bed, they watch the late night 12 o'clock news. Yeah. And they're constantly being bombarded with it. Don't get me wrong. You can still stay up to date, but you, I guarantee you'll stay up to date without watching the news because I do. Yeah, um, you can. 
It's very anxiety inducing. That's the thing. Even even reading the news is less anxiety inducing than watching it because yeah. of all the sounds, the headlines, the way it's presenting, it, just the, the whole thing. Yeah. The, yeah red, the red, the red bulletins. And why Absolutely. do they do red with notifications? It's to, it's to warn you. It's like a stop mm. sign. It's to pay attention. And it's non, non-stop of that all the time because our bodies don't need it. Um, favorite book I would say is Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No. Hmm. I haven't read it. That's one thing. So I, want, I wasn't going to give you a full, uh, uh, a deep philosophical one. I wanted to give something that actually would, uh, it's really benefited me and my clients. When the body says and, no. I'm going to read that. I love it. It's a really, really good book. It's a really good book. It's about when you don't say no enough in your personal life and your body says it for you and causes a chronic illness. How fascinating. Yeah, I can understand that. I will. um, Amazing. Well, you have shared so much. A very, very wide ranging interview there from gut health to mental health to to how to go to the toilet. I didn't dig dig into... um, enemas and coffee enemas and things like that that you might have but i'm sure we can maybe look at that another time (laughs) well just to put that out there if people are interested in that that's actually how i cured my gut with fecal microbial transplants oh wow so uh that's actually i actually used my partner's poop to save my gut so uh, so maybe that's maybe that's uh, something people can go on my social media to look at yeah they can, uh, and it's Ryan, um, Ryan, the holistic health coach on Instagram, isn't it? Well, let me let you share. Where can people find you, Ryan, and find more? Because you share so much content. Where can they find you? I'm mostly live on my Instagram, which is, as you said, Ryan, the holistic health coach. Um, and I post up as much stuff as I can for people and put stuff on my stories. And um, loads of my stuff is saved on my highlights. And that's pretty much where you'll find it. And about to start a new podcast soon. So I'd have to have you on there, Ooh, Angela, exciting. and we'll get to chat. We'll, get, yeah, we'll chat to. again about some more, some more <laughs> random stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and see where yeah. it takes us. I'd absolutely love yeah. to. Brilliant. What's the name? Have you got a name for the podcast yet? Or is it? Oh, still? not at all. Um, um, I don't know what to call it at all. So I'm just going to sort of flow with it at the moment. I don't know. And see. Yeah, I'm sure it will show up on your social media feeds um, soon. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that. Thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.